Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every day, decisions are made across Maine that impact our environment, and Mainers play a crucial role as we speak up for climate action, the clear air, clear water, and open spaces that we all love. Come sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories that you need to know, what lies ahead, and hear what you can do about it. Thanks for listening as we share our view from the front lines. You know it's officially spring and summer's on its way when the fish are running up Maine's rivers. I'm NRCM Advocacy Communications Director, Colin Durrant, and we've got another great episode of Frontline Voices coming your way. I'm going to check in first with our Advocacy Director, Pete Didesheim, to talk about one of the most spectacular natural wonders you can experience here in Maine the annual migration of sea-run fish from the cold ocean waters of the Gulf of Maine up our rivers to their spawning habitat in inland Maine. Um, Then our special uh, NRCM Rising co-host, Kate, is going to interview one of this year's Brookie Award winners, Noella Altvader. Noella is one of six inspiring young environmental leaders uh, being honored with Brookies this year for their amazing contribution to Maine's environment. You can go to brookieawards.org uh, uh, to learn more about Noella and all the other um, winners and watch some great videos, actually, to hear them in their own words. Um, before we get started with Pete, I just wanted to highlight a few quick news updates. Uh, NRCM recently joined with scientists, labor unions, and the State Chamber of Commerce and our conservation partners to voice our strong support for the development of floating offshore wind power in the Gulf of Maine. The winds off our coast are some of the strongest and most consistent in the world. Uh, That can help us generate the clean, renewable energy that's urgently needed to meet our climate goals, create new, good-paying careers uh, as part of an emerging clean energy economy. Um, Also of note, uh, Maine's transit agencies recently celebrated the launch of new all-electric, zero-pollution buses to serve their riders. You might recall that they're the, the Maine's first zero, uh, all-electric zero-emission school bus recently came to MDI, but now uh, we'll have a couple buses, uh, several buses in southern Maine that are serving riders there. And that's just another great example of how the clean energy future is going to be making things better for Mainers, uh, also with the help of federal investments. Okay, Pete, I want to kick it to you. I understand you joined a group of NRCM staff for a field trip to Benton Falls to watch the AOI runs coming up the Sebastocook River. Uh, I'd love for you to bring our listeners to what you experienced there on the river. Absolutely, yeah. So as you mentioned, you know, spring is a time when nature just bursts into action. We see it in our gardens, we see it in the woods, but it's a bit more difficult to see what's happening underwater. But it's happening and it's amazing. Uh, but you need to go to a place like the fish lift at Benton Falls or the fishway at Damariscotta Mills. There's a bunch of other places across the state that you can you can see alewives moving. But that's what we did last Friday, a group of staff, and we do this almost every spring. We went to the Benton Falls fish lift and oh my gosh, it's just a, such a sight to behold. <clears throat> it always is. It's one of my favorite uh, field trips, uh, but this year was particularly awesome. Um, This is the time of year when more than 100,000 alewives per day are passing through that fish lift at Benton Falls. 
and they reached the fish lift because of the removal of the Edwards Dam in 1999 and the Fort Halifax Dam in 2008, um, right at the mouth of the Sebastocook, uh, where it leaves the Kennebec. Millions of fish take that right turn and head up the Sebastocook. They know where to go. And this year, the scene was really fantastic. When we got there, I was thrilled to see dozens of middle school students from Skowhegan who were there on a oh, field cool. trip also um, with their uh, teachers to see the alewives in action. And I got to say, I wish every kid in the state uh, was able to do this field trip every year. It's mm -hmm. pretty amazing. Um, the fish lift is basically an elevator. It's moving up and down, moving a room full of fish. Uh, it then releases them. They come pouring out into a channel where they swim past these counters. You can watch them go through this, this uh, glass, past this glass um, aquarium sort of thing, which is really cool. But this year there was also half a dozen alewife harvesters who are capturing literally boatloads of alewives at the base of the dam. They're scooping them up with a big net, dumping them into an aluminum dinghy, moving the boat over, and then pailful after pailful after pailful, just scooping them out of the dinghy, putting them in storage crates, and then they'll be sold as lobster bait. And there were bald eagles circling in all directions. During this time of year, there are more than 60 bald eagles a day counted in this 50, in this, I mean, this five mile stretch of the Sebastocook leading up to the Benton Falls fish lift. And, and that's totally awesome. And I, my understanding is that so far this year, they've already moved about uh, 1.5 million alewives through that wow. fish lift. Um, since 2008, more, to, more than 40 million alewives have passed through the Benton Falls fish lift um, when the Fort Halifax Dam was removed. And this is much bigger uh, than what you see in the Kennebec River, I mean, the Ken Connecticut River or the Merrimack River, uh, which are much larger, but they're just not having the sort of fish runs that, that we're having here in Maine. So mm. that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's such a great success story. And I remember we took a visit a couple years ago uh, as we were doing a video for the Edwards Dam removal anniversary and i've never seen so many bald eagles in my life it is it's pretty cool it is such pretty a sight cool um of course you know uh we are an advocacy organization um so i can't help myself in acknowledging that on many rivers including here in maine fish just can't get to that critical habitat they need uh because there's obsolete dams lousy fish patch excuse me lousy fish passage systems uh, that stand in their way. Right. So after the Benton, exactly, after the Benton uh, Falls um, site visit, we then drove over to Waterville uh, to the Lockwood Dam. And that is a broken dam. It mm -hmm. has a fish passage system that just doesn't work. And, you know, a dam is just a brick wall that blocks fish from moving up to their critical spawning habitat. And this particular dam at Lockwood, um, the fish lift doesn't work hardly at all. The fish barely know where to go to try to um, get to the fish passage. But the bigger problem is this is just one of a series of four dams. Each one mm -hmm. of them is just another um, uh, obstacle for the fish to try to get past, to get up to uh, the Sandy River where they're trying to go. And, and at the Lockwood Dam, unlike at Benton Falls, 
you don't, the fish don't go in an elevator. They don't get released. They don't then swim up to, to fresh water. They go into a storage tank and then they're pumped into trucks and then trucks drive these fish to various um, inland freshwater lakes and release them. They've only released 24,000 fish total uh, this year from that dam. That's like a quarter of what happens in a single day at the Benton yeah. Falls. And these, this is just such a primitive way to, to try to get the fish to where they need to go. You know, in contrast, in the Penobscot River, one and a half million fish have already passed this year. Um, yeah. As I said, at the Benton Falls, one and a half, it'll probably get up to three, four million. Just a tiny fraction of fish are making it where they need to go. Mm. Primitive and a total waste of money and time. Yeah, I mean, ridiculous. What you, um, I mean, anyways. You know, these guys are like driving a truck, trucks full of yeah. fish. <laughs> Trucking, trucking fish never makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, well, of course, the day after you visited Benton Falls, May 21st was World Fish Migration Day. Uh, many of our partner organizations held events across Maine. Um, one really notable event um, was the celebration of the first alewives reaching China Lake in more than two centuries, the first time since the Revolutionary War. That effort, of course, was led by Landis Hudson and Maine Rivers in collaboration with many others, many local leaders. Um, can you tell us about that amazing story real quick? Yeah, real quick. That's uh, a project that, that has been a glimmer in people's eyes for, for at least 20 years. It's really been in the last seven or eight years that Maine Rivers, uh, working with uh, Department of Marine Resources, many locals, other, other individuals and, and organizations, have uh, removed three dams and they uh, built and upgraded three fishways. And, um, and that has enabled, as you mentioned, alewives to reach uh, China Lake for the first time since 1783. It's crazy, but that's that when the crazy. first dam was built that didn't have fish passage and, and then multiple others uh, in connection with mills were built that have blocked the fish run um, from getting a China Lake. And the thing about alewives, they're also called river herring, it's they're considered kind of the Purina fish chow of the sea. They're mm -hmm. hugely important for all the other fish up the food chain. So you want to get them up to spawning habitat where they can multiply and send millions of fish back into the oceans where they are then eaten by larger fish. And it helps uh, with the overall um, ground fish population and other other fish in the ocean. And uh, the governor was there at the event last week and Nick Bennett, our staff scientist was there also. And the governor said, um, I love this quote, I know these fish have been waiting 200 years to get up to China <laughs> Lake and we're not gonna delay them any further. Love <laughs> I that. thought that was awesome. But it was that a great so day awesome. and it was nice that it was timed with World Fish Migration Day. Yeah, for sure. Con and congrats to everyone who worked so hard on that. And I mean, proving yet again that river re restoration works. And yeah. it, it, it always, I think, exceeds people's expectations. Um, what a great story. Well, thanks so much, Pete. My family and I went to one of the local World Fish Migration Day events uh, uh, that was held here in Yarmouth um, that was organized by a group of residents advocating for the town to remove two outdated 
dams to free the Royal River here, and that would have a huge impact on, on sea run fish. Uh, it was fun to learn about their efforts, meet up with neighbors, including Landis, actually, uh, and see friends and, and learn about that good cause. Uh, well, thanks again, Pete, for joining us. Um, and now I'm going to pass it on to our co-host, Kate, for her interview with Noella. All right. See you, Colin. Well, welcome, Noella. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, you for having me. Yeah. Um, you spoke up about rights for clean water on the Passamaquoddy Reservation and spoke at a rally in Augusta not too long ago. Why is the right for clean water on the line? So for the past 70 or so years since the tribe has really had running water through houses, it's been toxic. The levels of trihalothalamethanes in the water causes it to be toxic to human consumption. You're only supposed to have about 80 parts per billion when it comes to the amount of trihalothalamethanes you have in the water. And the water tested about 120 to 125, which means it's extremely um, toxic. And it's full of chlorine. Um, it was a dump site for fecal uh, components, mills, uh, things like that. It's also a lake, which means it's very murky water already. And the big issue was that the problem was never being fixed and it was getting worse and it was causing people to be sick. The cancer rates are very high. It causes kidney disease, respiratory disease, um, health problems, skin, skin issues, uh, greasy hair. You can get, you know, just basically sick off of it practically. and. Um, We've addressed the issue and it's never really been talked about, it's never really been pushed for. And now more than ever, it's a really big, big time because of the pandemic. It's hard for people to get anywhere. It's hard for people to have the means to get water. And they should be able to just go right into their house and turn on their sink and be able to have it accessible to them that way. Instead, they have to rely on other people and money and cars to be able to get a basic necessity to survive. Um, what is your personal connection to the issue? What brought your focus to the toxic water crisis? So I have lived on the reservation my entire life. I moved away for a couple of years due to just a change in scenery. My mom wanted to move us, so we ended up moving. But I moved back when I was 16, and I realized that things never really got any better. The water was still the same. You weren't allowed to drink it. You weren't allowed to boil it. I remember we filled it up at holy water and everything like that. And as, as a kid, as a kid, you don't really think of that much as an issue. But then once you become an adult, and now I live on my own, it's a big, it's a big issue for me. I, if when I run out of water, I'm like, oh. Then I have to go out and get it, and I have to drive to go get it, and I have to make sure I can afford it. And if not, then I have to go see other family or have it dropped off to me and get a hold of somebody. And it's just it's very difficult to have that feeling. And for me, it was personal because it's all around me. It's in my family. It's in my community. And it's a problem that 
essentially is really hurting the well-being and overall survival of my people. So I got an internship opportunity through my grandmother. She works for AFSC, and they have a native-based program for youth. And she found this internship through WAVE, which isn't a program she was involved in. It was um, another program that had sent it to her. And she sent it to me, and I applied for it, and I got it. And that was the Wabanaki Youth and Science that I got to create the story map that I created through the University of Maine. And I have been doing that since I was 17. I'll be 20 in September. Um, and that's kind of how I got started. I got my foot in the door based off of just personal issues with this and not wanting it to be a problem anymore. That's really great. And good for you for, for stepping up and trying to do something about it and actively doing something about it. So you were trying to pass the LD906 legislature. Can you, in your own words, describe what that is? So LD906 is a bill, in a sense, that will allow us to have access to our clean water. It gives us the chance to have equal rights an equal say and equal distribution over what it is that our water is. We'll be able to decide where to put pipes and wells and where to put dump sites. We'll be able to decide how much water goes where. Uh, if we pay taxes on water, we're the only district that pays taxes on water in the state of Maine. Um, so there's kind of a lot that just really factors into it. It's it's about rights and the ability to do what it is that we're, we should be able to do with what's ours, just as much as anybody else. It's not a, it's not a territorial thing. It's more of a, we, you, you get to have clean water. We want the same thing. That's, that's it. And a lot of a lot of issues surrounding LD906 um, involve two pieces of land that are called fee lands involved in the native trust um, that we have with the state. And they're in Perry. And we want to try and dig off of those pieces of land and try and find clean water sources. And that was a really big thing because they didn't want that to happen. The Perry, the state of Maine, the government, I'm not really sure exactly. But I know that there was a struggle with that because they didn't want that land used for those purposes. So a lot of it was just more of like he say, she say, business-wise, um, money-wise, dis dispute. And it was it was very unfortunate, but thankfully it passed. It has been Congratulations. Forward and hopefully we can get something rolling. So now that LD906 has passed, which is phenomenal on a whole bunch of different levels, is this the end of this journey or is there more work to be done? Yeah, I'll continue on the story map. I'll continue to talk and advocate 
will continue to have to push and push because it, it's not going to solve the solution. It's going to give us easier access to clean water, but we still need the funding. We still need the, the actual construction of it. We still need the actual groundbreaking of it all through this whole process. And that, that isn't even going to start for a couple of years, most likely. It, it'll be a really long process to be able to bring clean water to an entire reservation of people. And it's going to be extremely expensive and extremely um, controversial due to a lot of different issues just because Eastport and Perry also have this water issue and they don't fight to have it fixed like the reservation does. So often people see it as unfair treatment or special treatment or I don't know exactly, but people see it as something that they want that they weren't given. And it causes a big fight in the communities and it, it's a struggle. So. We need to advocate for why this is an issue, why we continue to fight this issue, why LD906 is so important, and why the continuing processes, we're going to need as much support as possible and as much advocacy as possible because the problem isn't just going to stop now that LD906 is passed. We have to continue to work afterwards to keep it that way and to keep LD906 successful. Um, I hear other congratulations are in order for you as well for winning the 2022 Brookie Awards. Congratulations. Um, what are your personal next steps, either regarding that award or just um, pushing for, for rights? So I, the award was a really big thing for me because it showed that I, I could kind of obtain more than I really thought I would. Um, I definitely struggled with confidence in voice and confidence in you know my place in the world. And the Brookie Award really kind of gave me a step in the right direction of like, okay, you you are young and powerful and you can do it. And it it gives me those opportunities to be able to have those lifelong and be able to have collaborations forever that are going to make a difference within my community no matter what it is and that's super 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 important to me because I never want to really stop this work. I want to continue to have that voice. I want to continue to speak on issues that people don't speak on. I want to continue to try to have problem solution conversations to fix systemic problems, environmental issues, sustainability issues. I can say without a doubt that you have greatly contributed to the passing of LD906 um, with all the work that you did. I saw you speak and it was really inspiring to the people who were there. Um, and I know that it made a difference. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Noella. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, well, good luck on all your endeavors and wherever the world takes you next. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other podcast listening apps. Since 1959, NRCM has been tapping into the power of the Maine people, science, and the law to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. To learn more about our work, visit
rcm.org or follow us on Facebook.